All right, friends, uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn them to Genesis chapter 38. Last week, we began the the last major section uh, in the book of Genesis, which covers the life of Joseph. And so we have just about three months left in our series in in Genesis, and the rest of that time is going to be covering the story of Joseph. However, for this morning, we are coming to chapter 38. We find ourselves taking a slight detour as we shift our focus to the story of Judah and Tamar. And friends, this story is an interesting one, to say the least. If if you decide to read ahead at all to see what chapter 38 is all about, you will know what I mean. Um, But before we read this chapter together, I want to quickly remind us of the context that this story takes place in and, and introduce our two main characters. So last week again, in chapter 37, we were, we were introduced to the person of Joseph. And remember that Joseph is shown favoritism by his father over all his other brothers. And this creates such anger and tension and division in the family that his brothers actually end up selling Joseph into slavery and convincing his father that he has been eaten by a wild animal. And one of those brothers who participate in this evil action was Judah. And Judah is one of the main characters in our story this morning. And the other main character is Tamar. Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. Okay, so that is a a very quick introduction to our two main characters in Genesis 38. Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And this story is about the complicated and uncomfortable and at times shocking events surrounding their relationship. But more importantly, this story is about God's plan to redeem the world from brokenness. So read with me now Genesis 38, beginning in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onah, and yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, and said to his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up from Timnah to share his sheep, she took off her widow's garments 
and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was growing up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give to you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the younger goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back his pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the man of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at a name at the roadside? And they said, there is no cult prostitute who has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the man of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. More, however, she is pregnant by her immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put a hand out, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Church, this is a crazy story. This story is crazy. And, and when we come to passages like this in the Bible, we, we might ask, why is this story even in the scriptures? I mean, some of these verses are uncomfortable to read out loud, right? And the events of this passage are shocking, they are uncomfortable, they are, they are dark, but this is the word of God, church. And this is the world that we live in. Nothing happening here is unheard of to us. The, 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 the sexual immorality, the deceit, the taking advantage of one another, the, the death, these things happen all around us, church. We see this stuff in the news all the time. You, you, can, you can watch as equally shocking events in movies for entertainment, and some of us have experienced as equally traumatizing events as these ones. This is real life. And we don't want God to be silent about these things. His voice 
is the voice that we want to hear most clearly in the deepest valleys and the darkest shadows of this life. And so we're gonna walk through this passage together this morning and we're gonna hear God's voice. And we're gonna see his heart. And we're gonna find hope in the brokenness. Here's the main idea of this message this morning. The unstoppable plan of God to bring about redemption for his people is the only hope for a broken world. The unstoppable plan of God to bring about redemption for his people is our only hope in a broken world. And we're going to examine this by looking at two points this morning. First, the brokenness of this world. And and we're going to spend most of our time in this point because that's mostly what this passage is But then we're gonna move on to point two, which is God's plan to redeem the brokenness. But first, the brokenness of this world. The opening verses of our chapter this morning begin with the character Judah. Judah, as we will soon discover, is a wicked man. And our our introduction to him begins in the the first couple of verses with him marrying a Canaanite woman. Now, the, the Canaanites, as we see throughout Scripture, were, were enemies of God. So, so God has told his people not to intermarry with them. Uh, but Judah ignored this warning, and he, he married a Canaanite woman and had three sons with her. And one of these sons was named Ur. And Ur married a woman named Tamar. Okay, pretty mild so far, right? But then verse 7. Verse 7 is where this story starts to get intense. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, I don't know what you feel when you come to verses like this in Scripture, but the the more that I've thought about this chapter this week, the the more sobering this verse has come to me. I think we ought not to just breeze quickly by verses like this to get to the rest of the story without allowing us to, to feel the weight of this event. I don't, I don't know what this man's wickedness was. The, the chapter's surprisingly silent about what this man did. All we know is that Ur was a wicked man and God moved in judgment against his wickedness and put him to death. Church, God is not a passive God. He does not ignore sin and wickedness. And of course, this is, this is not a new concept to us in Genesis, right? We have seen this throughout Genesis. We, we see this in God's judgment of the world through the flood. We've seen this in God's judgment over the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. But we've seen some of these kind of big acts of judgment, right, in Scripture, right? And, and, and we might want to think that, that God's judgment to sin is kind of this, this vague kind of out there somewhere, only applying to to the really big events in human history. But that's not the God that we see here. We see in verse seven the, the personal nature of God's judgment against sin. God is paying attention. He's not just a concerned only with the big picture sins in life. He knows the details of our lives of your life, of my life. And our sins, they are not just on the the periphery of God's vision, where they will most likely go unnoticed and forgotten. 
You know, it's, you know, it's not like when you're, when you're driving on, on 95 in rush hour and, and everybody's going 20 miles over the speed limit, right? Like in this situation, you're not gonna get pulled over. You're just, you're kind of a, a blur in the mass of people who are breaking the speed limit, right? No one is really paying attention to you. But that is not the case with our sin against God. And we see this in verse seven. We see the sobering reminder that God is paying attention to the details of our lives. And our sins do not go unaccounted for. And we're gonna come back to this idea later and we're gonna find hope in the unbelievable grace of God. But we don't want to miss the sobering reality of God's judgment in this passage. God is aware of the wickedness of Judah's son, Ur, and God ended his life. And the death of Ur kicks off the, the, the rest of the drama to our story because the death of Ur makes a widow of his wife Tamar. And so this is where the drama really starts to unfold because in this culture, to, to be a widow was to be a, an extremely vulnerable member of society. This was even more true of childless widows, which is what Tamar was. They would have been looked down on in society. They would have often been left in desperate financial situations, lacking protection, easily taken advantage of. And without children, there would have been no hope to, to carry on the family line, which, which in this culture would have been almost the worst of all of it. And so because of this, it was a cultural norm back then that in a situation like this, if, if a man died, but he had a brother, his brother would marry the widow. And this is what happens in verse eight. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now this might seem very odd and unusual to us, right? But, but this was common practice back in this time, and it was actually an, an honorable and a loving thing to do. It honored the family line, it protected the widow, um, and it, it, uh, it, it was a good thing to do. Unfortunately, instead of taking this opportunity to do something honorable and good, in verse nine, Onan took Tamar as his wife, and in essence, he used her for sexual pleasure but held back from her the possibility of children and continuing the family line. Onan acted selfishly towards his wife. He is pursuing sexual pleasure with her while avoiding all the responsibilities that come along with it. He is dishonoring his brother. He is holding Tamar back from the possibility of children, which further isolates her from the people of God. And he's taking advantage of her in this vulnerable situation. This was a great act of injustice. It was a wicked thing to do. And in response to this wickedness, in verse 10, God put him to death also. And here, we get another picture into the heart of the character of God. I think it's important, it is so important that when, when we come to passages like this that are, that are hard to understand, that seem harsh, that we ask ourselves, what is God revealing to us about himself in this passage? And one thing we've seen is the, the sobering reality that God is a God who judges the wicked and moves personally and decisively against evil. 
And in verse 10, we also see that God is a God who is deeply moved by the acts of injustice towards the vulnerable. And we see this is particularly true in Scripture when it comes to widows. In that time, which is still true in in many ways in our own culture, widows were among those who were the most vulnerable and most mistreated in their culture, most excluded from the benefits of that society. And the Bible is filled with God's heart for them. The idea of biblical justice in the Bible is often so much tied up in the care for the widow. Psalm 146 says, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. This is a picture into the beautiful heart of God. And for the widows who are among us this morning, God sees you. God knows you. He is for you. And I love that God is not only just concerned with the the widow and the orphan, but he demands that his people be as well. Exodus 22, his command to his people is, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Isaiah chapter one, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. This is the heart of God that is bursting forth in Genesis 38. Onan is acting wickedly towards Tamar, and God will not stand for it. He puts him to death. It's harsh, it's intense, but this is the God that we want, church. We want a God who is moved by the mistreatment of others. We want a God who demands justice. We want a God who is concerned for the needs of the helpless. And not just the orphans, not just the widows, but all those who find themselves in desperate situations. Because this world is filled with injustices. And it's filled with people who find themselves in vulnerable situations. There are over 150 million orphans in this world. 18 million of them in our country alone. We want a God who sees them and demands care for them, right? Over the past couple of months, the, the news, the media have been filled, have been filling our screens with images and reports of, of mistreatment of women in Afghanistan as the, as the Taliban have taken over. We want a God who is not indifferent to their suffering. And of course, this past week we've heard a lot about the, the border crisis and, and, and the, the difficult situation faced by so many. And of course, this is a, a complicated issue, but no matter where you fall in the, the political spectrum, it's not hard to see the oppression, the suffering, and the brokenness that so many experience. And don't we want a God who is saddened by these situations and who is outraged whenever injustices happen? Church, that is the God of the Bible. His heart cries out against injustice. And he is moved to intervene for those in need. And often, he means to intervene by calling his people to action. God's heart of mercy ought to compel us to hearts of mercy. We've been speaking recently about uh, the mercy ministries that we are beginning to form this fall. 
We've spoken a lot about how we as a church, we, we want to grow in ambition to care for those in need, particularly those among us who are most vulnerable. And, and this is not an area that we would say we have been particularly strong in as a church these past three years. Though there are those in our church who do this so well. But, but our desire to grow in these things is fueled by what we know about who God is. He's a God who moves to the defense of Tamar when she's taken advantage of and treated unjustly. And in verse 10, when he puts Omar to death, I, I don't think the, the impact on us should cause us to think of God as a harsh and angry God. Rather, I think it should compel us to see God as a God who is grieved by injustice and cares for the vulnerable and has moved personally towards action. And in this broken world, that is a God who I want to call my God, church. As we continue in our story, we're going to see even more of this brokenness and even more of our need for this God. So Judah now, he's, he's lost two of his sons because of, his, because of their wickedness. But he has a third son. And so custom would be that he would now take this third son and give him to Tamar to be a wife and to carry on the family line. But Judah, understandably, is hesitant to do this, right? I mean, part of me wants to give Judah the benefit of the doubt here. His, his track record of his sons marrying Tamar has not been a good one. The problem here is that Judah it seems blind to the wickedness of his sons and appears to see Tamar as the danger. And so he deceives Tamar and tells her that, that she has to wait until his son is older. But we see later on that Judah has no intention of giving his son to Tamar. And so he leaves Tamar a widow, disconnected from the people of God, unable to, to bear children, and, and waiting for this day that will never come. And this is where the story takes a very interesting turn. Tamar realizes that she has been deceived and disregarded by Judah. And so she decides she's going to take matters into her own hands. And, and the opportunity comes when years have passed and Judah's own wife dies. And after this period of grieving, the text says, it says in verse 12 that Judah went to another city to visit a friend. And Tamar hears that this is happening. And so she decides that she's going to dress as a prostitute and cover her face and wait at the entrance to the city and seduce her father-in-law. Now, the fact that Tamar knows or thinks that this is going to work is pretty telling to the character of Judah, right? He, like his sons, is far from a righteous man. And so here comes Judah, making his way to the city, sees Tamar, who is disguised as a prostitute, and he decides to sleep with her. And for the price of sleeping with her, he tells her that he's going to give her a goat. This is all types of weird church. <laughs> However, Judah doesn't actually have the goat on him, so Tamar asks for proof that he will return one day with the goat. And she says, give me your signet and your cord and your staff. Now what is that all about? Well, back in this day, um, these items, they, they served as proof of identification. They, and they had these markings on them that would kind of identify who Judah was and identify his family line. So basically, 
uh, Judah is giving Tamar his social security card and his driver's license, right? Which we could probably guess is a pretty bad idea. And it is because later, Judah sends one of his friends back to the city with the goat to pay Tamar and get back his identity, but Tamar is nowhere to be found. This is because Tamar is now back in her hometown, now pregnant from her encounter with Judah, and as the months go on, it becomes known that she is pregnant. And word of this gets to Judah. And church, this is where we reach the height of the wickedness of this story. Verse 24 says, And about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Church, this is crazy. Judah has lost two sons now because of their great wickedness. And now he's afraid for the life of his third son, so he deceives his now twice-widowed daughter-in-law, and in her desperate attempt to remain connected to the family line of Israel, she prostitutes herself to her father-in-law. And now Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant and sees this as an opportunity to get rid of her once and for all, and so he publicly shames her and demands that she be burned alive for her sexual immorality, totally unaware that she is pregnant with his baby. This is just all types of crazy and wicked, right? (laughs) Judah is going to burn his daughter-in-law for the sin that he is guilty of. And Judah's blindness to his own sin is perhaps the most appalling thing about this entire chapter. But I think it is actually telling of human nature, right? We are slow to acknowledge our own sin, but we are quick to acknowledge the sins of others. The the, the harshness of Judah's demands here are unbelievable. I mean, back in this culture, adultery was technically punishable by death. But, but burning? I mean, burning is like the, the cruelest form of that death. And that's what Judah is demanding. It's, it's almost like Judah is, is compensating for his own wickedness by doing whatever he can to shift the focus onto the wrong of Tamar. How can he be the one to judge here? But this is what people do, right? We love to maximize other people's sins. And we love to minimize our own. We love to make villains of other people, whether that be a spouse or a boss or a politician or a church member. And we often do this in a way that shifts all the focus onto them and keeps us blind to our own sin. I don't know, I forget who said this, but someone once said that the easiest path to self-righteousness is to find an enemy in another. That's profound, and that's true, but it's a dangerous game to play. It can destroy marriages, it can break up friendships, it can split churches in half, it can result in years of harbored bitterness towards someone that we once to use to, use to love. And I'm, I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong to ever evaluate the sins of others. But many of these disasters in life could be avoided with some more self-reflection and allowing our own sins to be brought to the light and dealt with. 
And that's what Judah failed to do. He failed to see his wickedness. And he is about to add to it greatly. He has ordered Tamar, his own daughter-in-law, along with his child, to be burned at the stake. This is a pivotal moment in the story. Judgment has already fallen on Judah's sons. And so as Judah now moves to end Tamar's life, you kind of wonder, is this not only going to be the end of Tamar, but is it going to be the end of Judah as well? How do you recover spiritually, psychologically, after making a decision like this in life? And this is the pivotal moment that we ask ourselves, is there hope in this story? Is there redemption to be found here? Or is it just brokenness? And it's here that we move on to our second point this morning, which is God's plan to redeem the brokenness. As we work our way through Genesis 38, right, this story, it's, it's just getting more and more out of control. And we might wonder, can anything good come from this? Does God have any type of plan here? Because it seems like the story is just crashing and burning fast. But church, that is not the case. In fact, it's when we reach the height of the, the drama and the chaos in our story that we see God's plan start to unfold. And the height of the chaos happens in verse 25 where Tamar is being brought out to be executed for what she has done, but she has a plan. In verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Church, this is all types of scandalous and brilliance, right? And I, like, I don't really know what to make of, of what Tamar's actions are here. It's like, you can't really condone what she's doing, but she's not condemned for it in the passage either. I'm just, I'm not really sure. But what I do know is that she totally turns the tables here, right? She holds in her hands the identity of Judah and the proof of his wickedness. And now this is one of these moments in life where for Judah, everything hangs on what he's about to do. He can deny what he has done. He can, he can call Tamar a liar. He can try to maneuver his way out of his guilt and continue down this path of wickedness. Or he can confess his guilt and save Tamar and save his own soul. See, God is moving through these scandalous events, church to provide a way for Judah to, to not end up like his sons, but to find forgiveness and redemption from his wickedness. And by God's grace, Judah finds it. In verse 26, Judah accepts the blame. Then Judah identified them, being the objects, and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Judah is undone in this moment. He is faced with the undeniable reality of his wickedness. And perhaps for the, for the first time in his life, he owns it. He doesn't deny his sin. He doesn't shift the blame. His, his eyes are finally opened to the wickedness of his ways. Right? He was about to have Tamar killed for the sin that he was guilty of. But he recognizes she is more righteous than I. 
This isn't necessarily a justification of all of Tamar's actions. I mean, the bar of righteousness is set pretty low in Genesis 38, right? But he acknowledges that whatever judgment he saw fit for Tamar, he was guilty of even more of it. And this is the turning point in his life, church. We don't see it all here in this one chapter, but we're going to in the rest of Genesis. This moment where he finally repents of his sin and acknowledges his need for mercy, that that his life is transformed. He goes from someone who, who back in chapter 37 sold his brother into slavery and in this chapter was going to burn his daughter-in-law at the stake. He goes from this to being someone later in the book of Genesis is going to be willing to lay down his life to save another. And Judah becomes a key figure in the nation of Israel and God's people in the years to come. This is a wonderful moment of redemption. But God's plan is far from over here. God has something, in fact, much bigger planned. Our story concludes with the birth of Tamar's two sons. And through their birth, Tamar is now forever linked with the people of God. And she is established as a a major player in the nation of Israel. So Judah is transformed, Tamar is restored, and their family line is carried on through them. But as good as all this is, the, the reality remains that this all happens through scandal, right? I mean, I challenge you to find a crazier story, a story that's more messed up in Scripture than this one. And it's also in a seemingly random chapter in the Bible, right? Because chapter 39, it just jumps right back into the story of Joseph. So you might think that God's trying to kind of wash his hands of this story, right? And and just hope that it's not ever brought up again. But God has no intention of doing that. In fact, if you jump forward to the opening chapter of the New Testament, we will see that Judah and Tamar are an essential part of God's plan to bring redemption to this broken world. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, begins with this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So this is the part of the Bible where Jesus is being introduced. And it begins with his family history being recalled. And do you know who the very first woman who is mentioned in that family history is? It's Tamar. From this story. Matthew is declaring that Jesus, the redeemer of the world, has come And he's reminding us that this is the family line that Jesus came from. These are the people. These are the stories that make up the history of Jesus' family. You would think that the story of Judah and Tamar is the part of your family history that you want to leave out, right? But that's not what God does. He proclaims it boldly and often. Why? Why is the birth of the Redeemer of the world purposely linked to Judah and Tamar? A story of scandal and wickedness and things that honestly we are embarrassed to talk about out loud. It's because that's the whole reason Jesus came. To save us from scandal. 
to save us from our wickedness, to save us from the parts of our lives that we are ashamed of. That's the whole point of the gospel. And if you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, it's filled with scandal. Look at it this week. Look at Matthew chapter one. Look at the names and their stories. It's a mess. And if you left out of Jesus' genealogy all that mess, there would be no genealogy because that's how people are. And our, our stories, they might not be as wildly dramatic as this one, though for some it is, but God's word makes it clear that the story of Judah and Tamar is the story of our lives as well. We all, like Judah, have sinned. We have disobeyed God who pays attention to our sin. We minimize our sin and our deceit and our selfishness and our mistreatment of others. We seek to justify our sin by pouring to the sins of others. But God also is a God who the Bible makes clear judges sin. And it does not matter that the the details of your lives are different than the ones here in this story. Let us not make the mistake of minimizing our own sin by saying, well, at least we aren't Judah. At least our lives aren't this story. Because we are, and they are. We are all deserving of God's judgment just as he was. This story is our story, church. But here's the hope of the gospel. Here's why Jesus came. It is that we, like Tamar, were the ones who were alone, isolated, separated from all hope. And like Judah, we were sinners, deserving of God's wrath, the wrath of a God who sees sin and puts the wicked to death. But oh, the wondrous mercy of the gospel that Jesus was put to death in our place. He bore the wrath that we deserve. And we, in return, are given new life. 2 Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And behold, the new has come, meaning you are forgiven. You are brought into the family of God. God is not ashamed to call you his own. He gives you a new reputation. You are loved. And he says, no one has authority to tell you otherwise. And if you are a Christian this morning, then rejoice that this is your story. Even though we still face brokenness in this world, right? But the comfort of this passage is that if God is able to take this story and make it a story of redemption, then God is able to take your story and make it a story of redemption. And that is what he has done. The sin that remains in your life today, the guilt of your past, the the brokenness of your family, the wrong that has been done to you, these things may may cause us to, to feel that our life is spiraling out of control. But God's word, Genesis 38, declares that it is not. Remember this morning who your redeemer is and trust in him again. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, 
and, and the, the brokenness of this world is all that you know, this story can be your story as well. Christ gave his life that it might be so. Put all your hope in him this morning. There is no redeemer like our redeemer. He brings redemption to the lives of the broken. He vindicates those who are mistreated. He brings judgment to those who do wrong, but he is gracious and merciful to forgive those who do wrong. He brings beauty out of the chaos of our lives, church. And nothing can stop his plan. Not Satan, not the world, and not your own sin. His plan is unstoppable to bring about the redemption for his people. And that is all our hope in this broken world this week. Let me pray.